0: Giant robot smashing Into Other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Lindsay Christensen.
1: And I'm your other host, Chad Pytel.
0: And we're on to our next topic. We've covered product roadmaps, collaboration, as we've gone through this uh, startup series, and now we're going to talk about sales. Ugh Did you know you'd be getting into the sales business when you were uh, starting ThoughtBot?
1: No, you know, I joke because I think that that's a lot of developers and designers and you know product people's reaction. But I've always considered everything to be sales, you know, and and interviewing and and that kind of thing. And I think, you know, it's part of the reason why I've been able to do it is because just I, I sort of recognize that in a big way. I just consider everything to be sales.
0: Yeah, sales, there's definitely uh, can be a stigma around sales, can get a a bad rap. But uh, if you don't have sales, (laughs) you're, you're probably in trouble.
1: Yeah. The biggest areas of my thinking have come from sales, especially as our business has grown, is just the feeling of like, Well, everything is sales and I understand that, but to keep on like moving up and growing, I've needed to get more and more serious about sales and the sales process and how we approach things and that kind of thing. And I think that's Mm -hmm. where, you know, people look at not only like the process of sales, but then the psychology of sales and what a lot of they think sales culture is like and they react negatively to that part. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And and so for Thoughtbot, at least right now, when we talk about sales, we're talking about our services. And for a lot of people tuning in, that could also, and for our clients, for sure, that means their product. And what's the plan? How are you going to make money off of this product? And that can look a lot of different ways.
1: So many of the companies that we work with take this for granted. (laughs) And I think part of it comes to oftentimes a founder will be the one doing a lot of the sales. And so for the founders that we work with, that's a big part of what they're going to do. And then for the larger companies that we work with, sometimes sales isn't a factor. You know, they have an existing sales team or the work we're doing to create a new product. You know, the sales are going to come from existing channels. That's how they know that they should build this product. And so people Mm -hmm. approach sales from so many different angles and different expectations. And I think that that's part of where the confusion is as well as like what works for one company for the stage they're at and the sales they need to do is probably very different than another company based on who their founding team is or where their potential customers are or if they're, you know, having existing channels of customers and that kind of thing. And so... I think it's that lack of level playing field that makes this a a hard topic. No one's necessarily able to come in and say like every company should do X for sales.
0: Yeah. And I know when we're meeting with, especially folks who are thinking of engaging with ThoughtBot for an MVP type of engagement, one of the first things that we want to know is who do you think the target user is and... How will you be generating revenue from, from the product to understand that they are at least thinking along those right. lines? Uh, by no means d- would I d- think we'd expect anyone to have that nailed down. That might actually be a red flag. You know, you should be open to, to learning what this is going to look like. But to have an idea of where this could go, what what those different paths could be and what the potential experiments you want to run to learn which path is going to work.
1: Yeah, and I think that that is the first question that no matter who is doing sales at your company and no matter what stage you're at, you really should be able to answer that question is who are we selling to? Who is our target? Who is our ideal customer? And you know, it's worth noting that I think when You joined ThoughtBot. You found that maybe we had a sense of who that was, but it wasn't even as strong as it could be. And I think it's possible for you to build a business, a relatively successful one, and not really know who your ideal customer is. But once you start to figure it out, you'll find that you're more effective Just in general, you'll be able to prioritize the opportunities that you have better, and you'll be able to talk about the needs that your ideal customers have and why you're uniquely positioned to fill those needs. And I think you'll be more successful with sales after that.
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. That ability to focus on the ideal customer profile Sometimes it feels scary, like that you're leaving people out of the equation who could be sold to. I think that's the most common reason why that exercise isn't being done or why there could be pushback. But the prioritization and that focus is really key so that you can really continue to deliver for that target better and better which in turn is going to increase your sales because you're going to have an even better understanding of their problems and their opportunities, how your product or a new product could solve for that and continue to grow the business. Uh And it also helps you have those difficult conversations about saying no to people who aren't your ideal client or your ideal user and could potentially, especially early on, lead you down a wrong path Product path or distracting product mm-hmm. path.
1: So, if you don't know who your targets are, what do you do to find them out, your ideal customers?
0: I'd say the number one way is to have some existing data on hand, potentially. If it's really early on, maybe that's in the form of sort of qualitative interview kind of information um, as you're talking to different kinds of people and figuring out who you're going to be serving. But I think there's also, we see a lot of, you know, you've launched maybe that MVP, a really early version of the product, and getting data on who is using it, who is finding value with it, that's going to really help you sharpen your understanding of who this could be a really attractive product for and to continue to focus on.
1: Yeah, and I think a common mistake people make is that you're better off having an ideal customer or target identified and then learn that it was wrong than to not have one and to start off saying, well, everyone is our customer because that lack of focus makes it harder to make decisions and stay focused and prioritized. I think you want to do things to learn in advance whether you've got it right or not. But I would almost say like you're better off choosing and being opinionated and then learning that you are wrong and adjusting than to be trying to sell to everybody and not have a good sense of who your ideal customers are, even if you're just guessing at it.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, when you're thinking about also moving towards product market fit. Mm -hmm. And I think the kind of general advice is for a startup to hire salespeople once you think you have product market fit. Mm -hmm. One way I've, I've seen recommended to find that is through kind of like NPS of your product and then identifying like based on those NPS surveys, who is saying that they now basically feel like they can't live without this product. Mm -hmm. That'll also help you identify your profile. So who are the people that are saying that? And then you've reached sort of this inflection point where it's like they can't live without it. So that means they're willing to pay for it too.
1: Right. I don't want to take for granted that everyone knows what MPS stands for. So it's net promoter score. And it's typically like a a very one question survey, just one through 10. And it'll be a question of something like, would you recommend this to people? Right. Or if you could no longer use this product, how badly would you feel? And I Mm -hmm. think just in general for either telling people about the product or being upset that you couldn't use it, you're looking for sevens and above out of a scale of 10. And if you can consistently rate above that, I think that that's what people generally say is the rule of thumb for your metric looks right as something that you've achieved product market fit, or you know, you're know, you on the right track and you have something that can scale. If you're below that, you're going to have a hard time growing the customer base because your customers either aren't passionate enough about your solution or they're not going to tell people.
0: Yeah, and there are some great tools to embed into your product to make those NPS surveys go out mm-hmm. automatically and constantly be aggregating that data. So the other really... Interesting thing for me when we're thinking about sales, especially at a very new company, is how you're actually going to market. How do people get your product and pay for it? And the first, I think, if we're talking about, you know, multiple gates towards our final destination of understanding what our go-to-market is, the first one for me is usually, is this a consumer product or a business product.
1: Mm-hmm. So consumer products are ones where like the customers are consumers and the people using the product are the ones making the buying decision, the combination of those. Like, so whether it be in the app store or the online or a store or in a marketplace, it's it's a normal consumer that's buying it and they're making the buying decision. Someone's not making it for them.
0: Right. And then the B2B is it's usually a business solution. It's something that's helping you do something related to your work. Mm-hmm. And you're either having someone else buy it for you, someone else buys it for you and you don't <laughs> know about it. But, you know, you're, uh, you're, put, you're reaching for that other credit card. Uh, it's not the personal one. So it's a a totally different decision-making process that isn't entirely yours. And the budget for which is coming from your work and not your personal.
1: And even within that, there are those two important distinctions of whether it's more like how GitHub and Twilio and those developer focused products, or or even to a certain extent, Slack, where the individuals at a company start to use a product and they're the ones making a decision. And it's it's more like a consumer price point of 7 or 10 or $15 a month but it's then adding up to something more Then it goes from the bottom up or the opposite, which is individuals at companies aren't making decisions and you're selling to decision makers at those companies who are potentially deciding on which product to buy based on a different set of what's important to them is different than the people using the software.
0: And this can be a really difficult thing to figure out. If you know you have a B2B solution and understanding really like what is the route that makes the most sense in the organization? Are you trying to go for that like individual groundswell where individual users, it's like maybe, you know, it's not expensive enough that they need to pull in someone higher up or get approval on it? Or are you thinking that you could make a a bigger impact, a bigger sale if you can go directly to a higher level decision maker and sell like a whole team's worth of seats or access mm-hmm. to the software.
1: And it used to be that that was essentially the, the especially for digital products, like before the cloud and that kind of thing, like the only way to sell, the only way to get things used at a company was to sell to management and to IT who would then install it on a server and make it available to everybody. And You know, over the last decade, that's radically changed as it became no longer necessary to install things on a server that people could just sign up and start using it.
0: Right. And then on the consumer side, so I guess we'd have both if we're talking about software, mobile apps, Mm -hmm. which what, 100% you're getting them through (laughs) the app store. There's no other channel or you're converting online for a web app.
1: Right. And in both of those cases, you know, you might not have a sales team at all. A lot of companies like that don't really have at least not a traditional sales team because there's no sales meeting to do. You're driving people to your app or to the web store and you're getting them to sign up. And that's more in the realm of marketing.
0: Yeah, for those more transactional products. And even with like, let's say, you know, both sides, the B2B and the B2C kinds of products, as you're trying to figure out, do I need actual salespeople? It's important to think about the lifetime value of an individual user is at least a good first checkpoint in, does it make sense to have salespeople? Because if it's a really inexpensive product, then you're probably going to shoot for something that's more, yeah, like... Fueled by like growth marketing and is more transactional versus having an actual person that you're paying salary and overhead costs and things like that.
1: I forget whether it was talked about on this podcast back when we were working on and podcasting about Upcase and FormKeep and that kind of thing. But, you know, I'll just recap again. This is actually one of the things that we looked at then is like we were struggling to grow the products that we had beyond a certain level, and they were at the price points of $29 to $49 a month. And we had team accounts and we said, okay, could we grow the businesses that are using this with these team accounts? And even then we did the math on what one or two salespeople would actually cost in order to, you know, have them as part of the team. And the amount that they would need to sell at those price points was just like not possible. Mm-hmm. It didn't make sense. Like you need to introduce another price tier of where the ticket items are, you know, multiple thousands of dollars or even higher for you to be able to have enough money to pay for the salespeople that are selling at those levels. You know, salespeople aren't gonna close thousands and thousands of of customers at $29 a month. That's not what they're there for. Mm -hmm. That's not a realistic expectation. And so we did that math and we decided actually it doesn't make sense. We can't justify that unless we can figure out a different offering for those companies that those salespeople could then sell.
0: Right. And then you're likely thinking about, you know, different ways to package it to maybe try to get to those levels. Mm Even just like that, that thought exercise of, you know, can this get to that level that where a salesperson can sell these huge team accounts to large enterprises to get to that point and you kind of shift entirely to the the enterprise level, or even reconsider if you do think it maybe it's more valuable than you were, were charging for right. I think there's a probably a, there's a lot more experimentation in pricing and sales than people outside of that world might realize.
1: Mm-hmm. And I mean, not to keep using GitHub as an example, but I, I think it's a good one because a lot of people are probably familiar with it too. And it's a good example of where you sort of had the consumer-facing product. And when you understand who your ideal customer is for that, it's the developers individually creating accounts and small teams working together to find that thing that you might have a sales team that's selling, you might be competing on a different axis of value. And so the primary reason why or the ideal customer for the thing that the salespeople at GitHub are selling is companies that can't use github.com they need to install it they want their own version running on their own servers and that becomes something that people will pay significant amounts of money in order to do and it's changed but that's where it starts and then you can see how they've even evolved now just this month github made all teams free and lowered half the prices of the individual account prices because they're making so much money from those other enterprise customers that they can make their product cheaper for everyone else. I'm sure being owned by Microsoft doesn't hurt <laughs> either. But
0: Yeah, that's the dream. I almost feel like a lot of founders sometimes naively think they can replicate that model. I think it's really hard. Yeah. You really need to be just creating a tremendous amount of value, which obviously GitHub is, they're a great example of a solution that really truly is, I cannot live without the solution. It's a major part of the backbone of my business.
1: I think one of the things that we've seen our customers and just in general people struggle with is the lead time on those enterprise sales as well. And it varies, you know, if you're selling into healthcare or education or whatever, not only do you have a potentially long sales cycle, but with like education, there's a cycle to the long sales cycle, like a lot of buying and implementation needs to be in place for the new school season. And if you miss that, then you're just not going to make the sale until the next time around. A lot of companies struggle with that because not only do you have the high cost of sales, you have, you know, you're trying to sell the big ticket items that you might only have 10 20 30 customers a year that you're selling to so you spend a lot of money selling to that and it's really slow to make that happen and um, that can be difficult for a lot of companies that's one of the reasons why in addition to product development companies often need to raise a pretty significant amount of capital Because they need to be able to pay a sales team in advance of actually making the sales in whatever sales cycle they have.
0: Yeah, that can be a really tricky dynamic too. If you're a startup with an enterprise product, you could literally be talking about a sales process with a longer timeline than you have burn rate for. Right.
1: I don't think we've even had very many clients which are funded by Andres and Horowitz, but like. I listen to their podcast and one of the things they talk about is they will often really push for or advocate for founder-led sales because you're the best one to sell your product if you know it and you love it and that kind of thing. But there's another reason why is because if you can do it, then you don't need to hire a sales team while you're figuring out what your product is and who your ideal customers are and everything. So you're not burning all that money figuring that out with a sales team. And you achieve that and you figure it out and you start to grow. And that's when you bring in the salespeople as well. So we're sort of back to like not adding sales in outside of the founding team until you have really started to see that you have product market fit.
0: Definitely. And there are you don't know what kind of salesperson you need too. sales folks have different kind of specialties for sure. So that's part of that process too is that you'll come out of it and be like, okay, I need someone who does great high volume, small to medium sized businesses, or maybe even an industry background mm-hmm. um, that you've figured out as you've been doing the sales. Yeah. Another interesting thing in that early startup selling to enterprises is it's often a necessity that you're selling pre product, significantly pre product. So, you're kind of selling the PowerPoint and a dream of of what will deliver to them mm-hmm. with the objective of getting them to prepay for that. Mm-hmm. And that is sort of your your sales proof, both in the revenue you generate, but also in to your investors or to your board that you've you've been able to prove need by virtue of enterprises prepaying you a certain amount for you to solve a specific need so that you can move forward in that next chapter of building that thing and then continue on to figure out what next, you know, who else is willing to buy this? Where is the product going from here? Mm
1: -hmm. We even see a significant number of customers who some of their investors are their first customers, essentially, where it's explicitly a joint venture or more just this company has decided to invest in this and we're going to have other customers as well, but they are going to be our first customer. And that's an interesting dynamic. It's good because you have your first customer, you can tailor your ideal customer around them, but it sort of amps up the stress around because your your first customers are where your money is coming from. And not only that, it's not just that you've sold to them. They are your ownership as well. Mm. And so it's a it's an interesting dynamic, but I see it often enough where it's worth calling out that that can be the case.
0: That is interesting. I've also seen, at least it looks like from the outside, like investors creating portfolios where they're like buying from each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're like solving each other's needs and also almost creating like a, a marketing group. Right. Like they're hyping each other up.
1: Yeah, I think that that was um, there was like a bubble that was going on and people were calling that out specifically as like, well, like this company that's funded by this is just using (laughs) like Twilio (laughs) like crazy. And so all these companies are just buying from each other. And people were concerned about that bubble going away. But it's not necessarily a bad thing to have if you have a partner or channel that is driving business to you, that can be a really good thing. And it's figuring that out is also good. There's companies out there who they don't sell their product directly. People are selling it on their behalf through partnerships and through channels. Like reselling, for example, like there's some clients that we worked with and there's some businesses that their whole model is we're gonna sell to businesses and those businesses are gonna white label our product. Mm-hmm. And then we're either going to take a cut of all the transactions that go through it or something like that. That can be part of your model as well. So one of the questions that I've always had, Lindsay, and I, I finally know the answer, but what the difference Uh-oh. is between inside sales and outside sales?
0: Well, <laughs> right now during quarantine, <laughs> I, it's funny to call some something outside sales. Mm-hmm. But traditionally, Inside sales is higher volume, more transactional. They're on the phone, kind of, is the idea there. They're in the office and they're on the phone and maybe working on new leads and a number of new leads. And outside sales are the folks who are out in the field. Usually they're working with enterprise clients. Maybe they have a region that they're working on and they are moving around in that region, literally visiting the clients, taking them out to lunch, taking them out to golf. <laughs> you know, that's the the old stereotype. But because of the cost of that, you know, usually they're in charge of the really big accounts that they're nurturing. And they're working on things like keeping the client, looking for opportunities to expand within the client looking for opportunities to provide new kinds of value and giving that information back to the HQ, to mm-hmm. the product team.
1: So there are some companies who only have one of those, right? There's some com- companies who only have inside mm-hmm. sales or most of their things are coming inbound to them. And then the inside sales are just fielding it and it's more transactional and they're closing it. There are some companies that have no inside sales. They only have people out in the field working on those kinds of deals And then it's possible to have both or a combination of both.
0: Yeah, I think probably more companies have both Mm -hmm. so that they're covering all their bases there. Or maybe they have gone the reseller or channel route for one of those types. Mm -hmm. And that's how they're splitting that up. Inside sales, they work on inbound, but they also are probably responsible for prospecting as well. And sometimes or often... You'll call that uh, business development. Business development reps—they might be separate from inside sales or a part of inside sales. They're usually the more junior sales folks, and so they're trying to find people who match the ideal client profile. You know, get a hold of their information so that they can can reach out and then try to set meetings for more senior sales folks mm-hmm. to talk about the offering.
1: So we started the conversation with talking about the negative connotation around sales. And I think that that calling and cold calling and prospecting is one area where, I mean, you know, we all get it. We we all get calls that are spam calls and spam email and that kind of thing. So that's one aspect of it. And then there's the golf, the whining and dining, the outside (laughs) sales and That certainly exists, right? And there's movies about it. And, you know, those movies don't exist. Yeah, The Wolf of Wall Street. (laughs) Right. right. Like, those don't exist because they're nice stories. Like, there's some truth to that. And so, I think people's, you know, concern about that is rooted in truth. I think at ThoughtBot and just in general, we've tried to, and this is an area of learning for me, is that there's a way to do that stuff. That is more authentic to who you want to be and what kind of company you want to be, but you've just gotta you gotta be intentional about it because if you don't try, you can either not do anything because you're scared about doing things the way you don't like or you'll fall into just doing things the traditional way, and it'll be like the sort of like sales bro culture
0: <laughs> no anything but the sales bro. <laughs> Yeah, I totally agree. You can take the good and you can leave the bad behind and you can make it work for you. And it goes I think it goes for any role, you know? There are bad developers out mm. there. You know, there's some stereotypes right. about, you know, maybe not being able to communicate with each other great, but we, you know, we know there are tons of developers who do that really well. Um so the same thing goes for sales. I think it's not something to be afraid of and you can make it your own. One interesting element, though, or like maybe one challenging element, is that calling and emailing an outreach thing that's still going to be part of the job. That's still right. something that has to take place. And it's tough. And it, there's a reason why, you know, there's a kind of a sales profile of a person who does really well that they, they can take a lot of rejection. Mm-hmm. And you have to do that in sales. And you have to be comfortable reaching out cold and having kind of awkward conversations and trying to turn them back around and provide value. So there are a lot of really challenging parts of sales, no matter how you're going into it.
1: Yeah. What comes to mind when you say that, too, is like, I think that's particularly challenging right now. We found that at ThoughtBot, there's been some good blog posts and videos that we've shared amongst ourselves as well is like how different the current environment is where you're doing that entire process Mm -hmm. remotely. And it's also in a crisis. So like a lot of companies are not interested in talking about new things or a lot of budgets are being tightened and that kind of thing. So like all those sales conversations are harder to do now. And that's what we're seeing So that's where, you know, existing relationships, existing things that you're doing are important to fall back on because being able to call someone or cold call someone, first of all, they're not if you have their office number, (laughs) you're not going to get them now. But even if you do get them, they're just probably not in a mindset to be able to even entertain a new conversation with you.
0: Yeah. All of these outreach and sales techniques become even more nuanced right now, where even in non-sales conversations, when I get on the phone with someone, I know I'm thinking about, I, I have no idea what's going on in their life, but I can guess it's a lot harder mm-hmm. than it, it was before. So how, just how can we bring that into our, our work and be empathetic, and but still try to keep doing our business processes and you know, taking care of the company.
1: I think there's a important lesson in there, though, which is a way to bring humanity to the sales process is recognize that, yeah, we're in a particularly acute situation now, but it's always the case that everyone has a lot going on and everyone has their own sort of private trouble that they're going through. And if you bring that empathy to the relationships you have with customers and with your partners and that kind of thing you can bring humanity to the business and to the sales process and that kind of thing. And ultimately, you know, people will choose to work with your company over others because they people want to work with people. <laughs> and so I don't think you need to hide that humanity and that empathy. And, you know, we've talked about it before several years ago, ThoughtBot did, we hired a trainer to help train us in doing sales. And that was one of the big things from that training was, ask questions and you know try to be honest and get to the humanity and like figure out what makes people tick. It's okay to be talking to someone about a business need and and just say oh, that situation that you're dealing with sounds really difficult. How does that make you feel? Like that kind of conversation bringing that humanity to it creates connections with people that are real that you can then foster to have sales success.
0: And I think even bringing that back to the discussion around ideal client profile when we dug into ours that came through as actually a characteristic of engagements that are successful, our clients who share our values and are kind. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, you know, it's okay to also end a sales discussion if it doesn't feel right, like a right fit there too. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, I think that's a, a good place to end. So now we're going to take it back to our founders as we said, it's a unique time to be checking in on sales questions, and all three of them have really different models.
1: That's a good point. So, you know, we'll make sure as we talk to them to really try to dig in and, and highlight those differences and how they're approaching it. They each have different ideal customers and who they're selling to B2C, B2B that kind of thing. So it's really interesting. And some will be a two-sided marketplace like Nurse 1-1 is focused on selling to nurses and to the hospitals and to the things. But then they also have to get the consumers to sign up for the service. So they have it on both sides.
0: Yeah, as does Cheershare.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, looking forward to those.
1: You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm.
0: If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And this time we're asking for either your biggest sales nightmare or any questions you might have for our guests.
1: Okay. You can find me on Twitter at cpitel,
0: And you can find me on Twitter at Lindsay3D.
1: This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarsky.
0: Thanks for listening and see you next time.